was going to open. If you turn in your Bibles, this is the seventh class on Sukkot, and we'll be looking at Leviticus 23 and verses 33 to the end of the chapter, verse 44. very much. So we're looking at the last feast. I'm assuming everyone read the chapter. That kind of helps, right? And we're going to look at five different areas. Um, If you look, I know some people are always uh, anxious to look ahead or jump ahead, and that's fine a little bit as long as we understand. We first want to look at both of the history. History always tells us where we've been. What's gone on before? Because Sukkot has a rich history, and not just in the book of Leviticus, but also throughout the Tanakh. So that's kind of an overview of what we're going to be talking about. We'll also look at some of the traditional observance, as well as the understanding from the New Testament. Um, Sukkot in the future. I hope everyone knows Sukkot will happen in the future. And then also application. With every Bible study... My desire, and I know David and Han feel the same way, we want to see an application made of something you can take home and say, I know I should be doing that. And maybe you don't always know how the application looks like, but the Lord wants to do application with us. So in this beginning part, we see that the Feast of Sukkot is talked about. And does anyone know the what, what happens here? We have... We have read for us 12 verses, and the beginning point, we start with Sukkot. And is there some different words people have in their Bibles? Uh, Glee read Sukkot, Sukkah, Sukkah is the singular, Sukkot is the plural. Any other words that people... Festival Tabernacles. Tabernacles, Okay.
Any other words? Yeah, booths. Booths. Okay. Any others? Okay, and, and, and like I have there for you the, the Hebrew word, and, and we do get the word hut at times, or it's supposed to be a small dwelling. And, and part of the understanding is we're to, we're to be in this dwelling, and it's outside. It's outside, not something we have maybe inside of our house. And, and for some people, even the idea of a tent. A tent is a simple thing because, um, and, and that's a word that's actually used for sukkah when it's translated in the book of Genesis. It's translated tent. And so, I mean, you get these different flavors of what the word is to mean at times. And one of the, one of the first, does anybody remember who's the first person to dwell, to be a tent dweller? Abraham. And one of the things that's neat about this is, I believe it was Dr. John Gar in his book, he shared that Abraham had a tent. And we'll get kind of a tent here. And there were actually three portions to the tent that Abraham had. You had kind of a very private portion that was maybe the where the husband and the wife slept. And then you had another portion where there might have been like serving, working do, being done like cooking, you know, maybe a fire. And then in the first part of the tent, that was probably where there was like hospitality, where the strangers would have been coming in to meet and, and talk, and where there might have been some real fellowship at times. And that was the first idea of people dwelling in tents, is that they had that kind of an idea of, I have this section for this, this section for that, this section for that. And it's if you look at that, you notice it's almost similar to what God's tabernacle was to be. Because God had, where he was most intimate, he maybe had a place where work was done, and then there was a place where everybody could come, maybe, to, to take partake at the altar. So it's kind of a little bit of that same idea of the tent. And then as we look in verse 36, we have the word for um, solemn assembly. And the, does anybody know, can anybody say that word in Hebrew for me? No. Atzeret. Atzeret. And I hope I'm spelling it right. I've seen it with an S and a T. Atzeret. And this is the word where we get the solemn assembly. And what day was supposed to be the solemn assembly? Does anybody remember? Eighth day, very good, very good. The solemn assembly was to happen on the eighth day. Now, when you read this at first glance, does it look like God's just being kind of repetitive? Did you ever look at it more in detail? Because it, it looks like God is saying the same thing again. Seven days on the 15th day, right? If you start maybe verse 34... And look at verses 34 through 38. And then you match it up with verse 39 and 43. It looks very similar. And I was kind of saying, what is that about, God? Why do you have like two different sets of instructions? But some of it seems very similar and some of it seems very different. Right? Does any, did anybody else catch that? That it looked somewhat similar and somewhat different? Well, let's begin with simple observation. When was God telling Moses to do this? Do you remember when, when it was and where they were? And we're going to have rain on the tape now. So, but Does anybody remember the when and the where? Well, the children of Israel were camped at Mount Sinai. And God gave them all these different instructions. And at the very beginning, God's very clear that seven days you're to bring these offerings. And over and over again, we have offering by fire. And if you look at the parallel passage in Numbers 29, and you were to begin to count all the offerings that were to be made. On the first day, you offer this many. 
on the second day you offer this many, on the third day, and so on and so forth. You notice they start to get more and more by each day, and they begin to accumulate. And part of the picture that God is wanting us to see is that at the beginning, the first part of the instruction has to do with the here and now. The first part of this instruction has to do with when they get to Sukkot in the here and now. Because they're still at Sinai, and are they going to be able to bring grain offerings, maybe? Are they going to be able to bring the fruit and the boughs of the trees and everything else? That's going to be kind of tough because a lot of that is in Israel. And they still haven't gotten to Israel at this point. And so God is talking about a future. There's future instructions of what is going to happen, of how you're, how you're supposed to celebrate Sukkot in the future a little bit. And what's interesting about this, too, is some people think, isn't that kind of cool that God's making provision ahead of time? That he had a plan for what they're to do immediately, but he also has a plan for what he's going to do in the future. In the future, when they get to the land of Israel and they start to harvest their grain and start to do the work that's involved with that grain. And so that's kind of why it seems like at first there's a repetition here. On the 15th day of the month, on the first day, for seven days you do this, and then on the eighth day there's a solemn assembly. And these words are repeated, and I think that's part of the reason why they're repeated is because there's to be something that takes place right away when the children of Israel are in the wilderness, and then there's a time when God is going to bring them into its fullness when they get to the land. Now, David kind of um, picked up on part of this, because this, this is the, the third feast of the Shal- Shalosh Reglim. Regalim, I, I guess is that, if I'm saying that correctly. The, the three pilgrim festivals, the three feasts that God wants people to go to. And this time, it's saying, if we turn to Exodus 23... Exodus 23 and verses 14 to 16. Let's look at this passage again. And I know David reviewed a little bit of it in our first in our lesson about uh, Shavuot. But I wanted to, to bring out the rest of it and also help clarify in a, maybe what wasn't understood in that particular lesson. If someone could read Exodus 23, 14 to 16. Do I have a volunteer? Okay, Bruce. This was when the harvest came about. 
when the harvest time was, it was the end of the harvesting year. And I talked about that, how a lot of things were done around the end of the harvest. At the harvest time, like children began to go to school, so on and so forth. Some of these things are emphasized as the year began. And this is pointing to the end of the year when the harvest year was ending. The harvest would finally end at this time. So it was normal and it was proper, kind of like Mr. Kazdan mentioned in his book, for people to have a thanksgiving, to come and give thanks for what God had done from the land. Another name pretty much began to take place in this feast when they, when they understood it. And they simply called the Feast of Tabernacles Hahag, which simply means the feast. And you see that, that actually the rabbis um, take that right here in your text, right from the verse that you're looking at back in Leviticus 23, this idea of, in verse 39, Hahag, the festival. And that they were supposed to start doing the four species, and this was to be the feast, the feast that comes forth. In verse 40, we talk about the, the actual four di- different types of things that make up the lulav. And part of the understanding, the reason why it was called the time of our rejoicing, or the usimcha, was because that God, the rabbis believed that you were actually to take these things and you were to actually start dancing around the Sukkot with them. That it was supposed to be a time of rejoicing and dancing that people were to do at Sukkot. They were to actually hold the citron or the etrog in one hand, and then they would have the other three branches bound together in their other hand, and they would dance around the Sukkot. That's why God tells us to do those things. So that's kind of where it comes from. Now the second part I want to emphasize too is the idea of part of what's being talked about in this section is the wilderness journey. In this week's Torah portion, in the second portion, we have Matot and Masay. In Masay, we have in chapter 33 of Numbers all the different places that are recorded where each and every place Israel stopped. And in some cases we even have a little commentary of what happened what they did, what they encountered, maybe the fact that there wasn't water or something else was going on. And we have that talked about here. So what is what is the purpose of the wilderness? Does anybody know? Why does God get us out in the wilderness? So we'll listen to it. That's one reason, yes. What else happens in the wilderness? Some people say it's a place of testing. A place of testing. Why does testing happen in the wilderness? Why is the wilderness a prime time place for testing? To strengthen you. To strengthen you. That's absolutely right. And so with that, there might come come a little bit of suffering. Some suffering may happen in the wilderness, right? Did the children of Israel suffer in the wilderness? Can I get an amen? <laughs> it wasn't always pretty in the wilderness, okay? But part of the, this is part of what God wants us to remember at this time. Yes, it's to be a time of joy. Yes, it's to be a time of this and that. But there's also an emphasis on what else is to happen. So one of the reasons, and I'm not going to go through each and every one. I'm going to just go through two of them. There are two, there are several um, references, if you look under letter B, of our historical times of when Sukkot was happening in the Tanakh. And there's two that I, as I was praying and saying, Lord, I'd love to share on each and every one of these, but I only have time to share on a couple. So I want to share, first of all, on 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And Russell, would you be willing to read verses 8 to 10 of 2 Chronicles 7? Chapter 8. Chapter 7? 
verses 8 to 10. And if someone else would turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. So Shlomo celebrated the festival at that time for seven days, together with all Israel, an enormous gathering. They had come all the way from the entrance of Hamet to the Gadai of Egypt. On the eighth day, they held a solemn assembly, having observed the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days. Then on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he went, he sent the people away to their tents, full of joy and glad of heart, for all the goodness of Adonai had shown to David, to Shlomo, and to Israel, his people. What's the 23rd day? Does anybody know? Well, no, the eighth day would have been Shemini Atzeret. What's the 23rd day? Of that month. Well, what is it in every calendar? The 23rd day of the seventh month. Nobody knows? We celebrate it every year. Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah. This was right at Simchat Torah. Now, they might not have called it Simchat Torah at the time, but this is the first observance that we have happening on the 23rd day of the seventh month. And we also have these words, Hachag and Atzeret, the Shemini Atzeret, happening in this very same passage. What was going on at this time? Does anybody know? The background of this time when Shlomo was offering all these offerings? Dedication of the temple. Dedication of the temple. Happening at the Feast of Sukkot. It's an important lesson that God wants to do something great in the midst of Sukkot. A dedication. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 8. Another historical event taking place. And I believe it's verses 14 to 18. Nehemiah chapter 8. Who's got their Bible ready? Okay. Verses 14 to 18. They found written in the Torah that Adonai had commanded to Moses that the name Israel should dwell in support to feast of the seventh month, so that they should proclaim and spread this message to all their towns and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the hill country and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches. species being mentioned, at least three of them, the olives of, of willow and of palm and of myrtle, comes right out of the scriptures, right out of the scriptures in this area. This is why it's so important to know our history, but most important, one of the most important lessons in the Nehemiah narrative was there was a return. The people returned to God. And part of what God wants to do in Israel is the same thing he did in Nehemiah's day. Not only does he want people to come back to the land and start building and making homes and having lives, but he wants them to celebrate his feasts too. That's part of that same fullness of return. That was why Nehemiah's work was so great, because there was not just a physical returning, 
But with Ezra's help and with other godly men, there was a spiritual returning as well. Okay, I could dwell on this whole subject for three or four nights, but we only are looking at it in one night. So I'm going to go on into the traditional observance. And one of the things that Mr. Kazdan talked about in his book was the altar cleansing. And I want to ask you, does anybody know why they would have needed to cleanse the altar? Yes. Yes, it was defiled. That's good. Why else, though? Why else would you have a, a water-pouring ceremony on the altar? Thanksgiving for the rain. Thanksgiving for the rain. And that's a big theme throughout the Feast of Sukkot, the Thanksgiving of the rain. And this is something that we're also told that there was a great procession when you read some of the historical um, the different historical things. Josephus even mentions that in Yeshua's day, they had the four species, the etrog or the citron and the leaves of palm and of myrtle and of willow all tied together. And it was the same idea that they came to cleanse the altar. But this week's Torah portion again, if something isn't cleansed by fire, what does it have to be cleansed by? Water. <clears throat> it's kind of hard for the altar to be cleansed by fire because it says there's a fire constantly on it. So God wanted the cleansing to come about by the water. And that's how cleansing does take place. But still, it's, it's kind of odd as well, because what's funny to me is, didn't the altar just get cleansed at Yom Kippur, right? Well, everyone was here last week, I hope, or has listened to the, ta- the, the recording. But the point is, Last, you know, part of the picture was the altar was already supposed to be cleansed with the blood. But at this point, it was cleansed with the water as well. So showing that God had more than one cleansing, one purpose in what he was going to do with the cleansing of the altar. Now, the rabbis talk about the shelter as well, how the shelter is to be erected. And I have so many stories I could tell about this. There's so many funny things about erecting a shelter. But part of the picture was the shelter was to be erected in haste. It's supposed to be something that you put together very quickly, maybe out of things that you already have. And part of the benefit of that is knowing exactly that the shelter was also supposed to be temporary. You weren't to work on this thing and make it like a house that could really withstand everything. And part of that picture of temporary is, a, is something that we see over and over again in the New Testament scriptures, that idea of temporary dwelling place. And it's really important for us to understand that. Part of the way the rabbis wanted us to understand it is the readings that are done at Sukkot. Does any nobody know what book is read at Sukkot? Megillah Kohelet. Or the scroll of Ecclesiastes. The reason why is they wanted people to remember things were temporary. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's what you read at Sukkot. To understand this idea things are temporary. There's a reason why things are temporary. Okay, now let's switch gears to the New Testament and look at some of the understandings that we get from that. And there were, I think, three points or so I wanted to make. So, Barney deals with Yeshua's first coming. Yeshua's first coming. Now, I'm not going to speak authoritatively and say, I know for a fact that Yeshua came at Sukkot. I'm not going to be so stupid as to do that. I don't think anyone knows. There are clues, and maybe, yes, maybe he did come, maybe he didn't come. But that's not the point. That's really not the point. There's a greater truth in knowing some things about why Yeshua come, came 
and what was some of the purpose that we can learn from his coming. And I think that's more important. And so I'd like to um, see, Linda, could you read Philippians 2? Linda Grant, I, I don't know if you're up for it. Philippians 2, verses 9 and to 12. And Michelle, would you be willing to read John 10.10? 10? I'm sorry, I have the wrong verses. It's 3 to 8. I'm sorry, Linda. Yes. Yes. My bad. Thank you. So these are some of the things that also go along with Sukkah. That you're supposed to be coming before the Lord and thinking of others. That's right out of Deuteronomy 16. God says make sure there's enough for the Levite, the stranger, the widow, the orphan. Everybody is to come and enjoy this time of Sukkot. And that you weren't ever to show up empty handed. You were always to be thinking of others. Also there's an emphasis here in this point. Of attitude. What was Messiah's attitude when he came to this earth? It wasn't what he wanted to do or what he could do, but it was what God wanted him to do. And then most importantly, he emptied himself and he humbled himself. He could have come in many forms. We know throughout the Bible, he shows up maybe in different theophanies as we talk about. But the basic fact is, at this particular time, it says he emptied himself humbled himself, and came as a man. That's really the real message here. Not that whether or not he was born at this time. It's the fact that he came, and he came as a humble servant, willing to serve and willing to look beyond things. That's really the more important message of Yeshua's coming. Not the message of whether or not it's at Sukkot or not. John 10.10. 10. You want 10.10 or 1.1? 10.10. Uh, 10. Okay. The thief that comes... The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Yeshua had a mission in life, and it was to come to bring us life. That's that idea of reconciliation. And you know what? What's interesting about this portion in John 10, it happens right on the tail of Sukkot. John never breaks narrative. He keeps going at the end of chapter 7, and he keeps going until 10, and I believe it's like verse 20-something, that we get to Hanukkah. But for chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, Yeshua is talking about things that are very relative to Sukkot. At the beginning of this chapter, he says, I'm the door by which everyone enters by which all the sheep enter. And he came that we would have life. I know a lot of us have come at times because we were hurting. We were hurting people to the Lord. And the Lord was able to touch us and heal us. And that's part of the greater work of the first coming of Yeshua. Besides this understanding, there's more that we can look at in terms of, of tabernacles, of both what tabernacles were to be and how tabernacles existed, we see that in 2 Corinthians 5, God gives us a perfect example of what tabernacle or dwelling is to be, a tent. And in this passage, Paul refers to the tent as his body, or a body that we have. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, and this whole, um, it's verses 2 to 7, 
But this whole passage of first of Second Corinthians, we have lots of Sukkot themes. We have the theme of a veil. We have a theme of a vessel. We have the theme of a tent. And later on, we'll have a theme of a yoke. And Paul uses all these illustrations so that people will get it. They will get it. And let's read what he says about the tent. Do you have a volunteer? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 to 7. David, are you still in the room? Yeah. We're in this tent will be grown, longing to be clothed with our heavenly robe. If indeed, when we have taken it off, we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we grow under our, our burden, because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are in the body, we are away from the Lord. We walk by faith, not by sight. So part of the understanding is what was happening in us, what happens in our bodies. And maybe you have a certain body that's wearing out right now. And you have struggled with your health or your wellness. God knows what that's like. Paul makes a perfect illustration. A tabernacle, a tent, is to be that idea of something that's temporary. Something that we don't hold on to forever, but that eventually will wax away. And we desire that we can be clothed with what God wants us to be fully clothed in. Finally, um, when you look at Sukkot, there are points of knowing the prophecies of the future. And I'm not going to go through each of these. I don't know what I'm doing, how I'm doing on time. Okay, because I definitely want to spend more time on application. So I'm not going to get into these points of the prophecies. There are three. You can take them home. You can read them and be blessed by them. I did want to talk about one thing about the dwelling. God says in John 14, 1 and 2, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. If you believe in God, you'll believe in me. Have I not said that there are many, many people think it's the word mansions in my father's house. This idea is not the idea of a mansion, but of a a residency or a dwelling in the Greek. And someone asked me about that this week, and I was able to say that's not, God's not talking about a mansion. He's talking about a residency or a dwelling in John 14 too. You know, we all like to get, we'd all like to get to heaven and have a mansion and a cool Mercedes Benz or whatever God wants. Well, Mercedes Benz are made by Germans. But anyway, we might want something pretty cool or something like that. But the fact is, God's preparing a dwelling, a very dwelling. And it might be a very small temporary hut-like place like we've been talking about. That's why I've called tonight temporary dwelling places. Temporary dwelling places. Because we have to understand that this life is temporary. And what God has been giving us is a temporary thing. We can't get so hooked up and so um, so driven by what the temporary is. Every time we do, we, we, we lose a part of our soul to what God wants to do in us. And God wants to do much work in each and every person. So part of the things I wanted to talk about in terms of application is for us to learn that the dwelling, our, our, our tent, that's who we are. That's part of our identity that we have to learn how to embrace. We have to learn that part of our who we are, part of who our identity is to be, is a temporary resident, a person who's here just for a very short time to know what our assignment is during that time. And in 1 Peter 2, Peter talks about this, that you're to be temporary residents and aliens, that you don't live your life for yourself, but you live your life for what God wants it to be. The other thing that we want to look about is we have to learn to see things in the temporary. That's why Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. He understood He was going to die. 
And that at some point, everything that he had worked for, everything that he had attained, would no longer be his. And God wants us to understand that. But one of the most important parts that I want to come back to is this idea of suffering. And I don't think any of us really know fully what it means to suffer for the Lord. I don't say that in a boastful way. I say that that's just the way our culture is wiring us many times. For example, I'm not going to name names, but this, there was a person who was without their phone. Their phone broke. And they were devastated, crying. And I said, but... You didn't have the phone at some point, didn't you? There was time before the phone that you might have just read or looked at other things a different way or you called people on the landline phone. And the fact was, that's not real suffering. But this person saw it as difficult a difficulty in their life that was something that was very hurtful and very hard to get through and hard to wait on. And part of suffering, we learn to be patient It's not always fun, but it is, it is what we have to do sometimes. We have to learn to be patient. And I love what Peter says in this area. If someone could read 1 Peter and verses, chapter 5, verses um, 8 through 10. This talks about suffering. First Peter five, verses eight through ten. First Peter five, verses eight through ten. Verse eight: Stay sober, stay alert. Your enemy, the adversary, stalks about like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. He said eight through this verse eight. Actually, keep going. Verses nine and ten. Okay, standing against him, firm in your trust, knowing that your brothers throughout the world are going through the same kinds of suffering. You will have to suffer only a little while. After that, God, who is full of grace, the one who called you to his eternal glory in union with the Messiah, will himself restore, establish, and strengthen you, you and make you firm. So we have brothers. We have the little while. God will strengthen. That's part of the good stuff he does in our suffering. He will empower us. He will settle us down at times when we need to be settled. And I forgot the last one. Established. Established. God wants to establish us. Get us to start thinking the right way about things at times. Because we might have a thinking that's off. This is important. Important lesson of suffering. Not fun. Because we think a little while. A little while. Well, what's a little while, Lord? I've been going through this for four years or ten years or whatever. And the Lord, and in the scope of things, it's hard to see what is really a little while when we're in the midst of suffering. It's very hard to see that at times. And it's really important that we have to look to what's happening eternally. God wants us to understand that he can renew us in the inner man. And that's why it's back in 2 Corinthians 4 where God says the inner man is renewed day by day so that we're able to persevere. We're able not only to persevere, but we're able to give thanks. We're able to give thanks in spite of those things. Now, I will go from preaching to meddling now. Okay? I want to say something, and I hope this is taken the right way because this is one of the most important applications. If you've been a part of Yeshua Sion for a while, it's really important that you all understand that if you come on Shabbat or if you come on Wednesday night, things just don't happen. We are tent dwellers here. Somebody has come here and prepared the nosh that you partake in. They prepared the notes that you have. They prepare everything. And downstairs, there's so much more preparation that goes on because we don't get to have this building. At times, we sometimes like this building and we sometimes like to feel that it is home. But it's important 
We're a temporary resident here. And I hope everyone buy that. If the shoe fits, wear it. If it doesn't fit, don't wear it. But if you're not treating this like the house of God, I hope God would speak to you about that. Because this is just a temporary place that we're staying in. And it's an important application that we need to understand. This is not our, our place to be. We're, we're renting, we're borrowing this very place that we're meeting in. And we have to thank God for the fact that we're able to be sustained here. We're able to grow here. And God's doing some good stuff in that. And so I hope everyone can do two things in that. If God is leading you, pray about helping set up or break down. And I'm not saying that God is calling everyone to this, but maybe he's calling somebody here to help with parts of breakdown or parts of setup. That's really an application that you can get out of this because we're tent dwellers here. We're not, this isn't our own place. And the other thing is, learn to treat this place as holy. We want to treat God's place as holy. It's really serious that we learn this is where God shows up to meet with us corporately. And this is his house. And we need to remember that this place needs to be treated holy. And so I hope I didn't meddle too hard. And if the shoe don't fit, don't wear it. But I feel like that had to be said as part of the temporary message of this, of this night. So uh, Rabbi Haim, would you close us in prayer? Or if there are any questions, I don't know if we have much time or not. Comments, questions? I, I don't have questions. I have, I'm just sitting and thinking about when Yeshua was talking to disciples, he told, he told them that Jerusalem will be destroyed. So what happened after his resurrection and after he, uh, he left them and Pentecost came, basically what happened, the believers were congregation and they didn't think about that and all this money were coming to uh, to people to feed people that didn't have enough food and things like that but they knew somehow that they're temporary here they knew that they will leave Jerusalem because something bad is going to be happen and they were prepared for that and I'm thinking uh, while we were uh, talking about that yes our bodies are a temple and of the Holy Spirit, but I start thinking about my family history. My parents were born, uh, living in very, my grand, grandparents actually, they were living in very expensive home, and uh, then what happened, my, my father's side, what happened, the revolution came, they lost everything. Then they were living for temporarily in one place, and they moved to another place. My father, got married with my mom, they built a home. Then my father went to prison, came out, and couldn't get any job. They left this home, just gave this home away. Then we came to East Ukraine, and this, like, for some time, they were living there, and then this bad thing happened, Chernobyl, right. uh, like, horrible, horrible thing happened. This land became kind of like obsolete. You cannot even live there, otherwise you're going to die. Then we came to U.S. My parents were living in apartments. They never purchased a home. And out of all their journey, same thing with us, uh, me and Walter, we left everything in Latvia. We left everything there, came here, living from one place to another. And this home I'm living now, it's temporary thing. We, the first thing with our temple of the our body is temple of Holy Spirit. We need to see how we can uh, please God. That's the most important. Everything else, our life is like a, a like example as a 
Yes, that, that was in the paper as well, yes. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Any other questions or comments? Just a quick question in regards to what days you take off for uh, Sukkot. I mean, I can't remember off the top of my head. The first day is first and eighth. Right, so I was just, it was just a comment. No. I just have always thought it was interesting. I don't know how many people are aware that um, Sukkot is one festival that will be required of all the nations. Correct. Um, Zechariah 14, yes. Yeah, and any that don't will not have rain. Will not have water. Yep, and we all need water to live. That's water's... I mean, one thing that God got mad at Moses for was striking the rock, but it wasn't really an unreasonable request of the people to ask God for water. Water's something we all need. And uh, Moses just kind of got a little bit angry and took his anger out on the rock, which he wasn't supposed to do. But the people themselves were not asking something. I mean, he calls them rebels, but they weren't rebels. They were just asking for water. And water is a basic need. And we don't live in a country, I think, where we all are aware of that. I know in Israel, people are trained at a very early age to conserve water. And how they use water is important. And so I know that... uh, there's other places in the world, water's a big deal. Water's a much bigger deal than it is here. Thank you. Brother Haim, would you close us in prayer, or did you have any comments as well? No, it's plenty good. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Uh, the good things you do through our suffering, Lord.